The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, June 5th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys again. Um, my name is Shelby. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, today we're going to conclude our little jaunt through the Psalm 90s, and our text will be um, Psalm 99. So you can go ahead and find that uh, in your Bibles. That's where we will be all morning. Um, And for anyone who's joining us for the first time, we've been going through the 90s uh, in regards to the Psalms, having some fun looking back um, at these corresponding years in the 90s and seeing how they relate to our current uh, text. You know, as, as pastors and teachers, we, we draw parallels from lots of different sources. Uh, and it's been fun to look back on these years and to see um, so many things resonate with every bit of biblical application here. And I hope that's actually been a consolation uh, for you, an assurance for you, that this book applies to you right now. And if a bit of 90s um, nostalgia helps reinforce that, then sign me up. I'm for it. Uh, This book should apply to your year, your space, your time, your circumstance, every time. So just on a personal level, it's been been fun for me as the 90s were were fundamentally um, um, developmental years for me, entering high school in 19... 90, graduating high school and beginning college in 94. And today we're going to conclude by partying like it's Psalm 99. Uh, that, will, that will be my last Prince reference for the morning, I'm sorry. Uh, but this year, 1999, began with the um, uh, impeachment of a president. Uh, had a number of protests surrounding the World Trade Organization. Uh, human sexuality issues were splashed across the news as we celebrated our first bisexuality day. Uh, the Columbine school shooting happened that year as well, which was pretty severe and was a landmark event that had a nation grieving. I'm so glad we've moved past all of that stuff. Um, but. Looming over everything in 1999 was the specter of Y2K, or the year 2000, um, a computer bug. I I don't pretend to fully understand uh, the issue, but for those of you who weren't um, even um, alive yet, uh, there was a fear that many of the computers and systems would all fail whenever we rolled into Uh, the year 2000 on New Year's Day. The reason being because much of the coding had had shortened years in them. So instead of saying 1999, the computer coding would simply say 99. So no one really knew what would happen um, when 99 became 00. Of course, the news was uh, quick to let us know the disaster of biblical proportions that was coming our way. Banking, utilities, government records, it was all going to be blown up, Uh, fire and brimstone, dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Uh, I I do remember my family stocking up on supplies for when this um, uh, Armageddon hit. 
Um, and after a year of international alarm, a year of global panic, a year of feverish preparations, after all that, cue sad trombone sound, wah, 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 wah. very few things failed, uh, followed by arguments and accusations that the whole thing had been over-exaggerated. Again, glad we've moved on from a lot of this stuff. Um, so since the world was going to end in 1999, uh, two kids decided to get married. Uh, that would be Carrie and myself. Uh, we got married on August 14th, right before the um, uh, apocalypse the end of that year. Uh, we got married in Abilene, Texas. We had been dating for a few years. Um, and on April 1st of that year, I asked her to marry me. That's right, April Fool's Day. Thankfully, it was not a joke, um, either my proposal or, or her response. Um, I can't really recommend proposing on, on April Fool's. Um, to my defense, this was before smartphones. All we had were dumb calendars, and I was too poor to even have one of those. Um, but. Uh, we had been dating for a few years, and, and neither of us really wanted a long engagement or a big ceremony, so it was a simple, short ceremony, even shorter reception. Um, glad handed a few people, had some bubbles blown on us, and then we were out of there, driving to, I think, DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth, to catch a flight to Orlando for like a week in Disney World or something like that. But, but maybe it's, it's just a generational thing. Maybe I'm just becoming more of a, um, a curmudgeon the older I get. Um, but having um, attended a number of your weddings and, and, and um, a receptions particularly, I don't know how some of you do these um, elaborate four-hour-long receptions that are already following probably an hour-long ceremony. Uh, I think our ceremony was maybe 20 minutes, reception maybe 45 minutes, then we were out of there. The last thing I wanted was to spend more time with you people. So, um, but, uh, but something else happened in, in 1999 that, that looking back was really a catalyst for a spiritual awakening uh, within me, a pretty big movie came out that year that dovetailed on my own conversion a number of years before. Um, a little film called The Matrix debuted that year, and I was, I ought to admit, I was absolutely blown away when I saw that movie in that dark theater for the, for the first time. I mean, the movie... Uh, I, you know, I, I thought I was just going to watch something that was, yeah. I knew Christ, and I thought I was going to watch something completely disconnected from that. But this movie suggested that computers had turned on us, which was, which was um, appropriate, because Y2K was scaring us anyway. But the film suggested that the computer apocalypse had actually already happened. And that the world we're living in is under a delusion, controlled by an oppressive, unseen force. One of the characters in the movie, um, Morpheus, uh, describes it this way. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong 
with the world. When I heard that, um, uh, synapses were firing in my brain. Connections were, were being made that weren't there before. My spiritual eyes were actually being um, uh, opened. This sounded like it had some sort of um, a religious parallels happening with it. Biblical concepts and sprinklings were all through this film, and nobody really debated it. Uh, it had a you know, touch of Christianity, a touch of Buddhism, along with some um, a mysterious Moses figure named um, uh, Morpheus who talks to the main character, Neo, and starts sort of shedding some light uh, to the reality and the truth that Neo is starting to face in this film. He goes on to say, there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. The matrix is everywhere. It's all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, <clears throat> a prison for your mind. And watching Neo in this film, this character has a sort of rebirth, a very, a very literal one. He comes out of this gooey sort of sci-fi embryonic chamber. Then he gets dunked into water and is then lifted up out of the water, dripping off him like a, like a, um, a baptism. This just blows my brain seeing this. Uh, and it provided a backdrop that got me thinking just even about my own conversion a few, uh, years before. And few films sort of plumb this, this deep with its parallels. But this movie played with these concepts in a way that, that stirred me. I was seeing the gospel right in front of me. And I wanted to talk with others about the parallels they are seeing in movies like this that drew them into a deeper understanding of God and this book. It made certain scriptures um, come alive to me, scriptures like 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, including watching movies. And so this changed me in, in, in a fundamental way. It put in perspective all the movies, all the comic books that I had consumed as a kid. So as we look at 1999 today and Psalm 99, what might Y2K, a wedding, and the Matrix have to do with any of this? Have to do with Psalm 99? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that's what we're going to explore today. Um, so our final Psalm today in this little mini-series is short. Um, but it's rich with biblical imagery and references. So I'm going to approach it a little bit differently today. Instead of doing what I've been doing, just going sort of top to bottom with this, uh, we're kind of going to, we're going to read it and then we're going to jump around a little bit because I really want to meditate on some of the key words here that you're going to hear and to make sure that we understand what this means for us, both for these first hearers and it means for us um, uh, Today, So we'll, we'll read it and then we'll jump around a little bit. Um, you'll find echoes of the previous Psalms we've looked at in here, Psalm 90 and Psalm 94. You'll hear God again reminding his people of his steadfast love over all generations um, and um, addressing those questions we find at the end of Psalm 89. So let me pray for us again real quick and then we'll jump into this 
fun text. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the ways that, uh, that, that, that you've inspired me over the course of, of, of my life, but particularly by the way you called to me in 1988, calling me to be your servant, and then reminding me of how you saved me years later through, through both people um, and the products of, of people, movies. Father, thank you, for, thank you for opened eyes to see you at work all around me and the things I see and the things I read. And I pray that you would do that for us again today. Help us to see you in this psalm. Open the eyes of the men and women here to see you all around them in their lives. Grab each of us in that 1 Corinthians 10.31 way where we make every moment a gospel-centered moment. Nothing is distraction, but everything is edification. Help us to know that you are with us now as we engage your word directly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise his great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the clouds, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that, you, that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy, God's people said. The Lord reigns. If you're a regular reader of the Psalms, you've probably run across this word reigns uh, a lot. It's actually sprinkled a lot throughout these Psalm 90s. But what does it mean? I think probably in our heads, whenever we think about this, the immediate definition uh, may go to something like rules, you know, as in he rules over stuff. But this word at its base level means to be or become a king. So right out of the gate, we're given a sort of a, a weird tension here. And if you've ever taken my um, uh, quip class on tensions, tensions in worship, this is one of them actually right here. Yes, the Lord is already ruling and reigning transcendentally. He's already king. He's above it all. He rules it all. And he sustains it all. And yet we also know that God is also imminent. He is near to us. And the psalmist here um, uh, anticipates this. We have the benefit of hindsight here. The gospel writers actually celebrate this. Yes, the Lord has reigned transcendentally, sovereignly as king for all eternity, but now he's also come near to us and become king in Jesus. He has come so close to us, in fact, 
that he indwells us through his Holy Spirit. He actually can't get any closer than he is to you right now. So the Lord reigns. When we read and hear that in our Bibles, there should be a sense of of reverence, of awe, of sobriety, or formality. I am old enough to remember watching the wedding of Princess Di and Prince Charles when I was probably six or seven years old on TV. There was nothing informal about that wedding, if you remember it. Everything was meticulously scripted, and the message being communicated to average, average viewer was, this is not normal life. It was awe-inspiring. And so we communicate transcendence through some of our formality, uh, through songs like Holy, 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 like we sung this morning. But there's also a place for celebration. He has become a king that is near to us in Jesus. He has made us a part of his family. Neither one is better. Both are needed. So as we think about this transcendent God reigning, I want you to see three things that this psalm says um, about God, particularly in regard to his position, his position to us, his interaction with us, and his character. Positionally, the Lord reigns, and he sits enthroned upon cherubim. Positionally, he is sitting on a throne over everything else. And this is meant to be both a literal and a figurative reality. Generally, thrones are elevated, so we have to look up high to the king, which puts us where? Low. Positionally, we are low, God is high, we look up to him. We actually worship at his footstool, the text says. We don't even worship at his feet, but the thing his feet rest on. We have to raise our gaze up to him. It said he, he says he speaks from a pillar of clouds. Driving in early this morning, I had a great view of the sun rising with light playing off the clouds. Again, I had to look up. I was looking up to see that. God is on a different playing field than us. He is set apart, which is why we get three times in this text that God is holy. And yes, we've heard for years about holy means set apart. And I actually want to come back to this word later, this, this, word, this word holy here in a little bit, because I think sometimes when we approach this word holy as being set apart, it can probably have some negative connotations. Um, for those of you with young kids, if you don't want your kids playing with something, where do you put it? You, you put it high on the shelf, you set it apart, and then you see your kids doing what? Eyeballing that thing for the rest of the day. It is separate from them. They take no comfort from that. You take no pleasure in doing that. So we read holy here, and, and you think set apart, and some of you might think, oh, set apart like my absentee father. Oh, set apart like that boss that never listens to me or comes out of his office. So holy could feel very removed 
for some of us, in actually a painful and a hurtful way. So I, I do want to come back to that more in a minute. But positionally, God is high. And then we get aspects of how he, he interacts with us. And we get some very active words here. Establishing equity. Executing justice. He speaks. He avenges. Does any of that sound distant to you? No, it's very close. It's very personal. It's very interactive. And this interaction goes both ways. We praise him. We worship him. We exalt him. We call to him. He answers. And so then we're given aspects of his character because he doesn't just execute justice like we saw last week. What does the text say? He loves it. He loves justice for those who call on him. Is he aloof and distant? No, it says he answers them. What else does it say about his character in this short psalm? It says he, he, has, he has statutes. He has decrees. There, are, there is right and wrong. But it also says something else in here that's powerful about our God. It says he forgives. Notice in verse 1 what else it says about God. It says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, I will, I will admit, whenever I read that, I have this vision of God being carried off the football field by a bunch of angels, like in, like in Rudy or something. But this image actually requires some context on how the first listeners of this psalm would have understood that. This is actually a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the same one that Indiana Jones discovered. And sitting on top of that Ark were, were what? were two angels, two, two cherubim. And between those cherubim was what? It was the mercy seat. I heard somebody say it. So this psalm is reminding people that God is enthroned. He's sitting above that mercy seat. If you remember, God has the ark made to be a living symbol of his covenant and presence with his people, a people that had come from Abraham, who were freed and taken out of Egypt by Moses. And as they're walking with God, he has the ark um, uh, commissioned. Anybody remember what's inside the ark? His uh, commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, his, so his statutes and decrees are in there. I heard someone say a staff. So yeah, Aaron's staff is in there. Some manna. So his statutes and decrees are in there. Ways he's interacted with his people. Ways he's provided for his people. And then on top of the ark, where God's presence would dwell, that is called the mercy seed. And on the Day of Atonement, the priests would come in and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It's the place where Psalm 85 says righteousness and peace kiss each other. So right there, justice, mercy, atonement, peace, forgiveness, all under, all under his power. So he's enthroned above the cherubim. He's presiding over the mercy seat. Some texts say he's governor of the mercy seat. 
His commands are there. How righteousness and justice are executed. How mercy is dispensed. All of this under his authority and power. So whether you or I rise or fall, whether we're forgiven or damned, all under his sovereign decree. This is why the Lord reigning can be both fearful and trembling or consoling and comforting. It's terribly frightening or it's terrifically hopeful. And so it deserves the words that follow, great and awesome. But only if we understand what those words are saying because unfortunately those words are horribly distorted for us today. Is anything really great anymore? Whenever we use that word, it's usually in a sarcastic or a negative way. Great. We're not really that impressed. Same with, same with awesome. It just means something cool or exciting. And I, I always associate it with that cheesy line from that Rich Mullins Awesome God song. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the Ritz. I just want to crawl under a table and, yeah. But here the word great actually refers to scale and intensity, whereas awesome actually relates to fear. Some of your translations actually say, let them praise your great and terrible name. Great here is talking about the magnitude of God, of how um, uh, immense and intense He is. Remember, I am looking up at him. He is beyond anything my scope or mind could possibly fathom or imagine. And then on top of that, he's intense. The way I think about this is, you know, when you're driving either at sunrise or sunset, and you have that sliver of sun that's between your dashboard and your visor, and it's so bright, it's in your eyes, and you can't escape it. No matter how much of this or doing this or leaning down, that sun is hitting right in your eyes. The Lord is intense like that. He's intense like that guitar amp at the beginning of Back to the Future when Marty McFly strums that guitar. It blows him away. Everything shakes in its presence. Great also relates uh, to time. Simply put, our God is not new. So great, when you see this word here, I mean, it's, it talks about scale, whether you're talking about his age, which is eternal, his magnitude, or his intensity. So every time that sun hits your eyes while you're redri- driving, should remind you of how great God is, how big, how intense he is. And this, this word awesome here, uh, yes, I said it relates to fear. It, it, it relates to, to terrible. And funny enough, it also relates to the word perfect, but perfect in a way that is so absolute that is dreadful. Why perfect as dreadful? Because to stand next to something perfect is to make all of your imperfections stand out. We all know what that's like. We all have that person in our head right now that we compare ourselves to, whether they're smarter or thinner, or more athletic, or better looking, 
We don't like comparing ourselves to them because we feel lesser. Now imagine you're standing next to a perfect, omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-everything, omnivorous God. (laughs) Compared to God, we're going to notice some imperfections in us. Holy God, not so holy Shelby. And so at the end of the day, either we will fear God's way because it doesn't align with our own, or we will revere it and seek to conform our life and way and apply it to his character. And so moving on, I I don't want to belabor this next point, but that's why Christians must always strive to exhibit the justice of God, not the world's disproportionate version. Why? As this text says here, because God, the king in his might, loves it. He established what equity means. And these words, equity and equality, get tossed around and slapped on a lot of pronouncements today. But the text here says that God establishes what equity actually means. Everyone seems to be striving for equity, and there may be a lot of good in some of those acts and pronouncements, but it's never perfect. What may be good for some people is then denounced by others. But where is perfect equity and justice ultimately found? The text tells us right here. It says here in God. It says, in his holy and righteous decrees. There are rights and wrongs according to God and his word. Now, three people in this psalm actually get commended, actually get called out. Three guys on a mission who did great things for God's people. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. They're all called priests in this text. They were among those who called upon God's name, it tells us. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. Wait, Moses? A priest? I thought thought Aaron was the priest. Well, if you remember the... Our, our stories about Moses these past three weeks, he actually did perform acts that were priestly. Um, in, in Exodus 24, Exodus 40, for example, um, at the ratification of God's um, covenant with God's people, at the consecration of the priest and the priesthood. So, so for this reason, you know, a lot of the people I read this week leading up to this, you know, they... They say he can be placed among some of the priestly mediators. In fact, the word in the original language here um, is not confined just to the title of um, a Levitical um, priesthood or priest, because it actually applies to um, Melchizedek and others in in Scripture too. Whole other sermon on that. I'm not going down that rabbit trail uh, right now. But Moses is included in God's priest here in accordance with, with the true idea of a priest as being an official advocate for God's divine love and mercy, representing God through acting in the interest of man as a mediator. 
Moses wasn't a Levitical priest, but a continual intercessor for the people. So Moses was a type of Christ. He was a type of mediator. And many times throughout Scripture, men and women are commended for their faith and their work in the gospel. They're God's, they're God's instruments. And the means by which things were accomplished by his design, by his destiny, by his purpose, by his grace, he works through them. And how is this applicable to us? 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when this psalm says that these men called on God's name, what should we be encouraged to do? Call on God's name. To call on the name of the Lord and not just for ourselves because what's actually being commended here is not just that they were asking God for their daily bread, but that they were faithfully intercessing for other people, petitioning God on behalf of God's people, on behalf of his church, for those who were disobedient, those who were in sin, those, were, those who were rebelling or prodigal. We are a kingdom of priests. Do we pray for those who are in rebellion against God? Do we pray for those who are falling into sin, asking God to open their eyes to turn them around? Otherwise, uh, the psalmist is clear. Um, even as we saw last week, even if we're part of God's family, God's people receive both mercy and discipline. It says here, you were a forgiving God to them. But it also says, you were an avenger of their wrongdoings. That could be a reference to Moses, Aaron, or Samuel, or it could be a reference to all of God's people. Either way, God forgives. He's also going to punish sin. Now, all three of these guys were imperfect mediators, imperfect intercessors, and imperfect priests. I mean, just think about Moses. Moses disobeyed the Lord when he did what? He smacked that rock, and the water came out. And because of that, what happened? He could not go into the promised land. Just think about that for a minute. Think about how much this guy was used by God. How he was a champion and hero of the faith that we're told. I, I mean, how can we be anything close to that? A man who's been so faithful and used by God, and he never gets to set foot in the promised land. I want you to sit with what a heavy price that was to pay in his, in his earthly life. Our sinful decisions here have drastic temporal consequences. God's ordained discipline. I mean, Aaron provoked God by making golden calves. Samuel placed his sons over Israel, and when they didn't 
walk in God's ways. He gives Israel a king, which actually caused Samuel to go to his grave in sorrow. So we see it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout history. Don't prevail upon God's goodness and grace by remaining in your sin or indulging in it. Don't sit here and tell me, grace, 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 I'm covered by Jesus, and then sin like God isn't even watching. Because who does that honor? That's not God. And he warns us here of firm discipline. He's an avenger of wrongdoings. One commentator juxtaposes it this way. God's vengeance for sin does not prevent his forgiveness of sin. And God's forgiveness of sin does not prevent his taking vengeance. We're given a good example of this in, in, over in um, uh, Acts 5 in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira. People who it says in Scripture were disrupting the unity of the church. Well, God avenges some wrongdoings here. Causes them to drop dead right in church. And sometimes scripture says that discipline is for our betterment. Consequences temper us. They refine us. They improve us. God's treating us like his children. And sometimes we need a time out for 40 years in the desert. Let's keep going. Let's, let's look at our response in this psalm. Verse 2. He is exalted. That's all I have to read. The Lord is exalted. And then we get this two more times. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Worship at his holy mountain. Three times we hear this word exalted. Exalted simply means to lift up. Great ideological concept, but how do we actually apply this to our life? Technically, I can't lift him up. He's already higher. He's already exalted, um, so I can't really do anything for him. So how do I exalt God? How do I lift him up? As, I, as, I, as I've thought about this this week, um, come to the conclusion that we've probably greatly reduced this idea of exalting in God. And, and probably uh, a, a desire to move away from like a, a rigid formality and ritual and artifice and so we've moved to saying stuff like, you know, um, as long as it's from the heart. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Our worship does need to be from the heart, but I think we've even reduced it even further than that to simply meaning feel good feelings towards God. It's the equivalent of sending good thoughts your way. I'm sure we've been on the receiving end of some of those or even probably said it. Or telling people you're going to pray for them when you have no intention of praying for them. So in worship, how do we exalt the Lord? How do we lift him up? 
I mean, there's certainly a, a holistic approach to uh, uh, understanding this. Yes, it's my voice, it's my hands, it's, it's a posture of dependence and desire of God. How, how do I show my dependence and desire to God and, and, and others? And, and, and not just here in, in this room. How do I do it when I pray? How do I do that at home in my household rhythms? People to walk in my house, would they know that the Lord is exalted? What about my time? Is God worth my time? Every week my phone tells me how much screen time I've used. What if God did the same thing for you? What would your, what would your God time report tell you about your time with God? How is, how is God lifted up with your neighbors? Does your neighbor even know that you exalt the Lord? Because it should be in your speech. It should be in your thankfulness. No one should not know that you're a Christian. That you call Jesus your Lord because ultimately that's where all of this ends. Exalt the Lord, our God. There's a relational, almost possessive nature to that. This psalm compels us to consider and celebrate our, our high priest and how we can um, say that God is ours. Four times in this psalm, God is ours. That's a, that's a pretty powerful thing. There's a possessive component to my relationship with God, almost uh, bordering on um, uh, arrogance. I am possessed. I am his possession. One commentator said it this way, a very sweet topic will be found in the consideration of the questions, in what respect is Jehovah ours? And in what relations does he stand to his people? So just looking at this text, our God, who's enthroned upon the cherubim, the governor of the mercy seat, and atonement, the governor of mercy and atonement, the king of righteousness, a holy God, a set-apart God, is ours. And even that expression, a holy God, we had this expressed three times in this psalm. The Lord our God is holy. So the final words I want to focus on here the Lord our God is holy. Because this psalm calls us to contemplate what it truly means to be holy. And to consider what it means for us as we seek and strive and, and even ask for holiness. I mentioned earlier that most times we hear a definition of holy as, as set apart. And how that can sometimes conjure some negative or, or um, a disassociative feelings about God. Let me just offer you a simple definition that, that has helped me and, and hopefully helps you today. One way you can actually translate this word holy is separate from human infirmity, impurity, and sin. This is how God is set apart. God is separate from all of those things. 
Shelby is not. If God is holy, 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 then Shelby is wholly doomed. He's separate from me. I'm separate from him, and that's why we need a high priest. That's why we need the mercy seat. That's why we need an intercessor. We need a penalty substitute because I'm not that. I actually, I deserve God's penalty for sin. So in light of all that, it should make me grateful and thankful Thankful for his mediation. Thankful for his promises. Thankful for his written word. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Jesus, the ultimate high priest. Jesus, the ultimate penalty substitute. Moses, just an archetype. Samuel, just a foreshadowing. Aaron, just a forerunner. These men were just glimpses of the reality to come. God, our great high priest in Jesus. God from eternity making, becoming man and suffering and dying to serve as that high priest. We don't need blood ceremonially sprinkled on a mercy seat anymore because the governor, the president of the mercy seat, descended and lived with us and then died on the cross. His blood shed forever as the mercy and atonement for sin. Jesus is holy. And by that will we have been sanctified, will we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Through Jesus, I get made holy. Shelby, who is full of human infirmity, full of impurity and sin, has been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. We can be with God, and God can be ours. He can be mine. He can be yours, but only if we are made holy through faith and belief in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on our behalf. Scripture, scripture also likens this to a marriage. Scripture calls us the church, the bride of Christ. And the imagery used here is, is like a wedding. Christ will come like a bridegroom for his bride. That's why in the Old Testament, when it talks about being unfaithful to God, the metaphor and the illustration used is one of adultery. Even Jesus in his earthly ministry, when he used parables to talk about his kingdom, talked about a woman waiting for her bridegroom. All of this imagery about how we are brought into holiness with God is that we are married into and receive that holiness through Jesus. In one sense, we are engaged right now. And engagement or um, uh, betrothal in the Old Testament would have been unbreakable. But we're waiting for that wedding celebration. We're waiting for that festival. And we are brought into this wedding feast by being joined with Christ in covenant and relationship. So, so the forgiveness that it talks about in this psalm, only through Jesus. 
to be able to be God's people in this psalm only through Jesus, to be considered among his priest or royal priesthood only through Jesus, to even be able to keep his statutes, his decrees, only through Jesus. And, and Revelation talks about this day as being the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's like a wedding reception. It's the party of all parties, bigger than partying like it's 1999, bigger than some of those four-hour marathons I sat through with some of you. And every wedding should remind us of this. Every reception, every, every gala, every festival should remind us of that eternal promise in our hearts. And there will be a day coming when Jesus will come back for his bride. Our God, our King will come back to reign with his people for all eternity. The code of our world is going to have an irrevocable break. Not Y2K, but an apocalypse beyond our comprehension. Scripture actually describes it like the stars of the heaven being rolled up like a scroll. So all these pandemics we experience, whether it's Y2K or COVID or whatever coming next week, should be a reminder to us as Christians that one day Jesus actually will return. And the end of time as we know it will come to an end. And if we're not in Christ Jesus, then the earth will quake, as this psalm tells us, and we will be the tremblers. Awesome will mean terrible. Vengeance will rain down. Justice will be executed. And that word could have severe consequences if we're still in our sins. And every day we go out into the world around us and it wants us to pull down that suppressing illusion of truth. The world would have us take the blue pill, just remain in your delusion. Just enjoy the creature comforts of now. Don't think about tomorrow, just enjoy this life for what it is. The world would tell us anything beyond this life is just myth or fiction or that we can't know or that there are many paths to God, that God's just going to wink at the end of time and let us all into heaven. Human infirmity, human impurity, human sin. This is who we are apart from God. This is who we are. But as the psalm tells us, the Lord reigns. Our God reigns. He is holy. Holy is he. Our God is separate from infirmity, impurity, and sin. Isn't that what we want? To be holy like our God. To be holy like he's holy. To be free from human infirmity forever. To be free of my impurity forever. Free of sin forever. Isn't that what we all want? And I know you feel it. I know you see it all around you. Something's wrong with this world. But our universe has an architect, and he's firmly in control and reigning. 
We have a master. We have someone who offers us not just a pill to open our eyes, but a complete cure for our sin-sick souls. The ultimate anti-aging pill. And one day death will be no more. No more tears, no more leukemia, no more sin. All of that washed away by the blood of Christ and brought into God's family forever. We can say we belong to holy God because he's made us his, holy through Jesus Christ. And if you don't know this God, Psalm 99, again today, tells us, call on his name. Like others before you have done, all the way back to Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, call on his name. Call and he is faithful to answer. His word says, you can be a part of his family through Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders through your Psalms these, these past few weeks, even as we've looked at some heavy topics like sin and depravity and, and death. I, I, I pray that as we contemplate how great you are, that, that we would be reminded that there are no glitches in the matrix. Everything is by your sovereign design. So help us today to respond in faith and belief and trust. And thank you that we can through Jesus. Help us to show our dependence on you, our desire for you, even now as we, as we prepare to take communion and sing. And let that desire and dependence carry us through the next week as we come into contact with those who don't know you. Help us to exalt you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our priest, our savior, our friend. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.